We think of the fact that you loved us and you have given to us this message of reconciliation, that you are in Christ reconciling the world to yourself. And Lord, we pray that you would transform us by your love and make us people who who serve you because you've loved us, who are set apart and sanctified by your love, and who live and speak your truth because of your love. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So this Thursday, August 16th, we have an opportunity to help uh, college students move in at the UofL. If you want details about that, you can reach out to Matt Pierce, who can, who can get you a sign-up form. I get out of class at 1245 on Thursday, and I'm headed there. I'm, I'm, I'm going there. And I'm going to tell you two stories that illustrate why I'm going to go do this. The first one is from my own life. When I was a freshman at the University of Arkansas, I distinctly remember the first Sunday morning that I spent in the dorm room. And I can remember the thoughts that went through my mind. Am I going to get up and go to church? My whole life to this point, it's been a no-brainer. I'm going to church on Sunday morning because my parents are taking me to church on Sunday morning, and I don't have a choice in the matter. But now, I've got a choice. And it's a question. Am I going to go? And I had received this flyer from University Baptist Church, which was right down the street from the University of Arkansas, kind of like Kenwood Baptist Church is right down the street from the University of Louisville. And these people were promising me free pizza. <laughs> and I didn't, I mean, the meal, the, you know, the dining halls were closed on Sundays. So I'm not saying that the only reason I went was because of pizza, but it factored in. It, the fact that I had a flyer was a factor. So it, from my own life, my my life was changed because I was in church every Sunday throughout my college years. Changed in ways that it would not have been had I, had I not gone. So I think it's important that we go and we try to serve these people and we try to meet these people who are coming here for school and we help them and we invite them. I'm going to tell you another, another story about a guy named Philip Jensen. This guy, he's a famous Christian. You may not have heard his name, but... I bet, I mean, Denny's heard of him, and, and if, you, if, you, if you pay attention to Christian preachers, this guy's an internationally known preacher. He's from Australia. Um, he, he, if you've ever heard of Two Ways to Live, this little gospel track, this guy, Philip Jensen, he wrote that gospel track. He produced that. He, he was the pastor of a church called St. Matthias, out of which grew Matthias Media. He's a well-known guy. When he was in his mid-40s years ago, he's now past retirement. He's retired now. But when he was in his mid-40s, he was pastoring a church near the University of New South Wales, and he was the chaplain to that school. And uh, on a certain day, all the students were going to, you know, first day they were there to register, all the students were going to be in this big, long line, and he invited the whole church family to come out with him and to just, just go down through the line, inviting people, inviting the new students to come to, to the church. And he said on this particular day, I mean, this guy, this, this, is, this is a guy with a huge personality. He's hilarious. He's the life of the party. Well, this day, this strategic day for inviting all these new students, nobody turns up. He's the only one there. And as he told the story, he related that he felt this. He, he said to himself, you know, 
I think I'll just leave it for next year. I think I'll just go home. Yes, it's strategic, but I'm just going to go home. And then an 18-year-old student who had just registered himself. The the story he tells, this student was not, he was physically small. He was clearly timid. He was clearly nervous. He was not excited to be there. But he showed up and he said, I'm here. And Philip Jensen said, his presence transformed me. And and the, the, the kid didn't say anything the rest of the day. Philip Jensen did all the talking. Don't let Satan tell you that your presence doesn't matter. Don't let Satan tell you, it doesn't matter if you show up. They don't need you. Show up. Show up. You never know how your presence is going to affect somebody else. So I would encourage you to take this opportunity. We've got an opportunity to go serve these new students. Let's take it. Uh, another opportunity, if you're looking for one, is, is uh, to get information from... Uh, Uh, the Davenports about this ministry called Oasis, which is all about befriending and loving international students at the University of Louisville. Take the opportunity. If you're looking for a way to build into the life of unbelievers, there's a a possibility. Go talk to to the Davenports about it. They'd, They'd love to tell you about it. I would invite you to open the Bible this morning to Romans and we're gonna we're gonna look at Romans 1 verses 1 through 7. And Um, We talked last week about Paul's life. Uh, Paul probably wrote this letter in the spring of A.D. 57. So, you know, we talked last week about he was probably born sometime between 0 and 10 A.D. So we just worked with the year 10. That would put him at about 47 years old when he writes this letter. He's going to be beheaded probably about eight years from the time he wrote this letter. So this is a man with a short time to live. And he's going to tell us who he is and what he's about. Uh, all, all letters in the New Testament, they start this way. They start with the name of the sender, except something like Hebrews, which doesn't give us who wrote it. But here we have Paul. And then Paul, what he's going to do is he's going to tell us three things about himself. And then he's going to tell us about his gospel. And then he's going to address the Romans. So here are the three things that he tells us about himself. We read here, Paul a servant of Christ Jesus. And you know, that, that's an interesting phrase, servant of. It, it may remind you of certain statements in the Old Testament where someone would be identified as the servant of the Lord. And, and actually, the, the language here, often in the Old Testament, there will be different Greek, u, Greek terms used in that particular phrase when they translate it in. But on, on three or four occasions, they use the same construction and the same language that Paul uses here to talk about people like Joshua. Joshua, the, the doulos of the courier, of, you know, the servant of the Lord. Or, or Moses, 2 Kings 18, 12, the servant of the Lord. Or David, Psalm 36, 1, servant of the Lord. And so I think it's possible that what Paul is doing is he's talking about himself the way that these Old Testament figures have been described. Paul, a servant, but look at what happens. Remarkably... Where you expect expect Yahweh, Moses, the servant of Yahweh, Joshua, the servant of Yahweh, David, the servant of Yahweh, Paul puts in Christ Jesus. That's stunning. Paul, a servant of Messiah Jesus. That's the first thing he tells us about himself. 
And, and I would just add here that we should all think of ourselves this way. If you, if you are here and you are a believer in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are his servant. Another way to translate this word is slave. You are a slave of Christ. That's what you are. He's Lord. He's King. What he says, his, his, his law, his word is law for us. He's in charge. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. We talked about this some last week, where uh, back in, in the book of Acts, we read about Paul's conversion, and we read about the Lord Jesus um, summoning uh, Saul. At that point, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then Jesus identifies himself to, to Saul and tells him what he is going to do. And, and as the risen Lord Jesus appeared to Saul and commissioned him, he authorized Saul as one of his apostles, one of his representatives. There are only this kind of apostle there are only 12 or so of these guys. You've got the 12 that Jesus named as apostles in, in the Gospels. Judas drops out. They put Matthias in his place. And then Paul, is, he joins that, that band of apostles. And then maybe you've got uh, Barnabas. There's some statements that make it sound like Barnabas is in that group. And then possibly James, maybe Jude. But those are your apostles, and that's all the apostles we're going to get like that. People that saw the risen Lord Jesus and were commissioned by him. So Paul is a servant of Christ Jesus. He's called to be an apostle. And then he describes himself set apart. And this, we, I, don't, I don't remember if, I, if we referenced this last week, but in Acts 13, you remember the church is praying and the, the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul. And, and this is the very term used that for, for Paul to be set apart. And then look at what Paul says he's set apart for here. He set apart for the gospel of God. The word gospel simply means good news. Paul is set apart for the good news, and this good news is God's good news. This is not good news that Paul invented. He, he really emphasizes this in Galatians chapter 1. This is not from man. It didn't, it didn't have a human origin. This is good news that God gives to the world. So the three things that Paul tells us about himself is that he's a servant of Christ Jesus, he's called to be an apostle, he's set apart for the gospel of God. We're, we're servants of Christ Jesus. We're not apostles. And anybody in this room that starts running around calling themselves an apostle, the elders are going to confront you and tell you to knock it off. And, and anybody else, if we have the opportunity, they, they start running around telling them, telling people they're an apostle, if we get an opportunity, we're going to say to them, hey, wait a minute now. I think you're using confusing. You shouldn't talk about yourself that way. It's confusing. It's not helpful. You are not an apostle. At least I'm going to say that to them. I'm going to try if I get a chance. Um, we are set apart, set apart for the gospel of God. This, this particular term used here to describe Paul being set apart is also used in the Old Testament as, as uh, sacrifices, are, are described as being set apart for the Lord. You know what Paul's going to say in Romans chapter 12? He's going to say, you, you know, your body, you're a living sacrifice. We are set apart, and we should think of ourselves as set apart for the gospel of God. After all, the Lord Jesus did say to his, to his followers, go make disciples, baptizing them. It's what we want to be about. 
We, we want to be about uh, taking opportunities to, to live out what Paul is describing here. So Paul tells us about himself, these three things. Now he's going to tell us about his gospel, starting in verse 2. He describes this gospel of God. He says in verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This is a really rich statement. The gospel, look at what the, look at what the text says, the gospel was promised beforehand by God. You, you could reformulate this statement, God promised the gospel beforehand. Do you see that? The gospel is not some accident. The gospel is not God's response to them rejecting Jesus and crucifying Jesus. The gospel is what God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. In other words, if you look at the Old Testament and you miss all the indications that the future king from David's line is going to be crucified on behalf behalf of his people, in the place of his people, and then raised from the dead, and thereby God is going to work redemption. If you miss that, you've missed what God has promised beforehand in the gospel. So what we want to do is we want to take our cues from Paul and learn from Paul to read the Old Testament and to see these things in the Old Testament. God promised the gospel beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Okay, so so the gospel was promised uh, beforehand by God in the Scriptures. Look at what else this implies. This says that where the prophets speak in the Scriptures... God speaks. That's a way to reformulate this. When the prophets speak in the scriptures, God has spoken. Where the scripture speaks, God speaks. This is why we believe that the Bible is the word of God. And and Paul's not making this up. There are all these statements. I I keep this this list of of statements in, in one of the Bibles that I carry around. I love these statements. Psalm 12, verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. Psalm 118, verse 89, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Psalm 119, verse 96, I've seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Psalm 119, verse 160, the sum of your words is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true. And we could just go on and on quoting statements like this. The Bible claims to be the word of God. Paul says that God promised the gospel beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Point of application for us here. So many of us. Are, are rootless in this world. We, don't, we, we can't think past. I mean, I know my grandfather's name. I don't know my grandfather's father's name. Yesterday, I was at the hospital with, with Chris and Holly Smith, and they've named this little one, they've given him the, the, little name, or the middle name, Permenter. And, and Chris was telling me about where this name comes from. It, I mean, I forget how many great, 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 greats it is, but this guy, Permenter Morgan, who's one of Chris Smith's ancestors, lived from like 1735 to like 1805, some, something like that were his dates. He showed me the headstone. I didn't write down the dates. 
He showed me a photograph of the headstone. That's an amazing heritage. Most of us don't have a heritage like that. I don't know my heritage. I don't know my ancestors. But the gospel gives us a heritage. The gospel has been promised by God beforehand in the scriptures. It has eternal roots in the heart of God that begin to manifest themselves through these promises. And then as we, as we become people of the gospel, we become people with a heritage, with a history, with roots that go back into eternity past. So many of our contemporaries, John Stott said this about, about so many people in our culture. He said, we're like plankton on the ocean of meaninglessness, just floating around on nothingness. The gospel gives us a heritage. It gives us a, a history. This gospel was promised beforehand by God through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Look at verse 3. Concerning his son. Uh, what, what, is, what, what Paul's going to say here is is glorious about Jesus. Uh, Paul is going to talk about Jesus from the human angle and from the divine angle. So he starts with the human. And he says that this gospel, if we just skip over verse 2, this is the gospel of God at the end of verse 1, verse 3, concerning God's Son. So this is the gospel concerning His Son. The gospel of God concerning His Son and then the, the ESV renders this, who was descended from David according to the flesh. But literally, the text says, who came from the seed of David. And that word seed is often rendered in the Old Testament offspring. And, and it's one of those words that every time you read across that word offspring, or if you're reading the King James, it says seed. I think it's worth circling that word or underlining it or highlighting it or something, marking it. Because what, what, what Paul is saying to us is all these promises about the offspring, all these promises about the seed, they come to fulfillment in the seed of David. He was descended from David according to the flesh. This is why we read the genealogy of Jesus earlier in the service. Am I the only one who was hoping that Denny would sing Matthew's Begats by Andrew Peterson? <laughs> he didn't do it for us, but that's okay. Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh. You can trace the line of descent. You can go look at the genealogies. And I was thinking about this. You know, Paul, Paul is clearly a very analytical thinker. And as you know, there are these differences between the genealogy in Matthew and the genealogy in Luke. And I was thinking to myself, I wonder what Paul thought about those differences. If, assuming Matthew and Luke, maybe he had seen an early version of the, of the gospel circulating, maybe they were written before he gets his head lopped off. If he had seen those, what would he do with those discrepancies? And one thought that came to me, I mean, I'm sure he's, he's a legal mind, he's probably got good explanations, like that line's probably tracing the father's line and that one the mother's line, or uh, this line is tracing a biological line of descent, and this other one is tracing maybe the, the leveret marriages that might have taken, taken place. To These are ancient ways of accounting for the discrepancies. But another thought that came to my mind was, Paul probably thought, look, I saw a glorious light from heaven on the Damascus road. So I know it's verifiable because I know what I experienced. I, I can give you legal explanations, but I really don't need them. I've encountered the risen Christ. He knocked me down, 
And he said to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I said, who are you? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And, and, and so I think Paul would probably say, look, we can account for those discrepancies, but I'm really not worried about them. He's alive. And he really does descend from David according to the flesh. And I just want to be clear here. If you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, you need to realize what you're doing. You're rejecting eyewitness testimony to the risen Christ. You're rejecting historical claims that, that Jesus of Nazareth really did live, that he really did descend from David, that all those generations really can be accounted for, that the promise really was fulfilled. You're rejecting all of this personal testimony, eyewitness firsthand testimony to the fact. And I would plead with you to reconsider. I would invite you to consider that maybe these guys writing the New Testament, Paul, Matthew, Luke, these other guys, maybe they're telling you the truth. That's what we all believe. We who believe in Jesus, we believe they're telling us the truth. God promised the gospel beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his, his son who was descended from David, literally who came from the seed of David, according to the flesh. And then he tells us about the divine nature. That's the human, the human Christ. Now here's the divine Christ. And was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Now, I, I, I just want to try to help us get, a, get our, our minds around what Paul is saying here. You notice that in both statements, in both, three, both verse 3 and in verse 4, uh, Paul is referring to Jesus as the Son of God. And, and this is in keeping with Old Testament expectation. Uh, you remember from the end of, of the genealogy of Jesus in Luke that Adam is referred to there as the Son of God. And then David is told in 2 Samuel 7 that God is going to raise up his descendant after him and, and put him on the throne. And God says of, of this future descendant of David, he says, um, um, he will be a son to me and I will be his father. So, and, and then before that, God had identified the nation of Israel. He said to Moses, go and tell Pharaoh, let my son go. Israel is my firstborn son. So Israel is like Adam in that they're the new the, the son of God, and then the king from David's line is going to be the representative Israelite, the son of God in this sense. And at a human level, in this culture, uh, whatever your father did for a living, that was likely what you were going to do for a living. So Jesus is the son of the carpenter, and um, the way that you act also plays into this. So some wicked people will often be referred to as sons of Belial, Belial being a demon. So Sometimes when the, when the Old Testament refers to worthless people, what, what's behind that translation is sons of Belial. They're, 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 they're children of the wicked ones, demons. So at a certain level, uh, you could say about the future king from David's line, he's going to be the son of God in the sense that he's the new Adam, the new Israel, and he's going to live like God lives. He's going to act like God acts. He's going to be godly. But then there's this other thing here in verse 4. He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. What's going on here? Well, I think what's happening here is this phrase, according to the spirit of holiness, this is telling us what Peter announced on the day of Pentecost. You, you remember Peter, is, he's preaching along 
And, and he, he tells these people that, he, that he's preaching to, in, in verse 24 of Acts 2, he says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It's not possible for Jesus to be held by the pangs of death. Why? Because of the spirit of holiness. Because he's holy. Because death has no claim on him. Because he's done nothing wrong. He has not earned the wage of sin, which is death. And so his resurrection from the dead declares him to be the Son of God. In power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. He is the conquering Christ. He is the living Christ. He is the holy Christ. And by means of his death and resurrection, he's the saving Christ. This is the basis of our hope. That Jesus prevailed. He conquered. And he lives. Because death, the, its pangs, can't hold him. He was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. And I love the way that Paul has built up to this. Because it's like he's been telling you all about Jesus. And it's like he's stair-stepping up through all of these phrases. He, he's, he, this gospel about him was promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And then finally, he gets to the name. Jesus, the Messiah, our Lord. And he, it's, he's built up to this climactic moment when he says the name of Jesus. And then it's, it's like... He goes back to his own personal experience of this gospel, this saving good news, where he says in verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. And here I think Paul is talking about what happened to him on the, on the road to Damascus. Through Christ, grace was given to Paul, and he was made an apostle when Jesus appeared to him. The risen Christ appeared to him, made this announcement to him, and then started telling him what to do. And the only thing that Paul could do was obey. If you're here and you're a believer, this is what's happened to you. You've experienced the living Christ. And you've become convinced. I, I, was, I was talking to a brother yesterday who's going through some difficulties. And he, I was so encouraged when he said this. I said, so you're not doubting the faith. And he said something like, I, can't, I should have written the words down. He said something along the lines of, I know it's true. I know it's true. I can't be unconvinced of it. This is the way it works for us when we believe. If you're here and you're an unbeliever, this is what we want to happen to you. We, we want the same Jesus that walked out of the Bible into our lives to walk off the pages of Scripture into your life. Paul says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Again, I think Paul is talking about what happened to him, what, what is related in Acts chapter 9. Um, back in Acts 9, there's this, uh, this dialogue that takes place when the Lord appears to Ananias. Paul has been blinded, he's been taken into the city, and the Lord comes to Ananias and 
um, it's, it's such a, it's, it's really kind of a comical story. Um, the Lord says to Ananias, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man named Tar- man of Tarsus named Saul. And, uh, it, you know, Ananias responds the way that we would all respond. I've heard about that guy. Are we talking about the same guy, Lord? You sure you got the right candidate for this job? Are you sure you know who he is? And then, and then the Lord tells Ananias, he says, go. This is in Acts 9.15. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name. Listen to Romans 1. Bring about the obedience of, the, of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So, so in Acts 9, Paul is commissioned to bear the name of Christ to the nations. This is what he's saying. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Let's talk about this phrase, the obedience of faith. This is, this is not an obedience that you enact in order to earn your salvation. No, this is an obedience that you carry out because you're convinced. You're convinced that Jesus is Lord. You're convinced that he saved you. And your experience of this salvation has broken the bonds of sin that, that used to shackle you and it's freed you to serve him. So Paul's going to talk in Romans 6 about how formerly we were slaves of sin, but now we're slaves of righteousness. That being a slave of righteousness, that's talking about the obedience of faith. You, you, you love Jesus, you're freed from your former slavery, and, and so you live out what he's called you to do. I love seeing this happen at Kenwood Baptist Church. And I am so encouraged by you all. I I see this happen all the time in in your lives. And it is such a privilege to behold. It's great to be around Christian people. I think you'd be surprised by these these surveys. Sometimes I think, and and, you know, anecdotal experience, we we, we know that sometimes people are not that thrilled to to learn that we're Christians. It it sort of puts them uh, looking at us a certain way. But I was looking yesterday at these surveys on the, um, on the internet, and, and it was saying things like over half of people actually have a positive opinion of Christians. Over half the people survey, in this particular survey, they, they, they're positively disposed. They recognize that Christians are loving, caring, serving, good people. It's a great thing. It's a great thing. Don't, don't be afraid to identify with Jesus, and don't be afraid to invite somebody to... To, to know more about Jesus, to, to maybe sit down and read the Bible with you and learn about him. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. This is the ultimate reason we want to be set apart for the gospel of God. This is the ultimate reason we want to be servants of Christ Jesus for the sake of his name. Um, Just some other other places where things like this uh, are said. Um, um, Acts chapter 5, you know this text. The apostles, um, Peter and John, they're, they're, they're beaten and then in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, 
Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Um, in Acts chapter 15, after the Jerusalem council, they've, they've, they've come up with the decision that they're going to send out to the churches, and they say this about Barnabas and Paul. They say, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We, we could go on and on with statements like this in the New Testament. And, and really, what I'm, what I'm trying to press in on here is this is what we want to live for. Recognize that every aspect of your life ultimately is for the name of Jesus. So the unpleasant things that you don't want to do, and every one of us has unpleasant things that we don't want to do. I got them in my life. There are meetings that I don't want to go to. There are conversations that I don't want to have. There are, there are duties that are incumbent upon me that I would prefer not to do. Nobody has a life where they only get to do the stuff they want to do. And what we want to do is we want to take a statement like this for the sake of his name, and we want to apply it in every one of those situations. I'm scrubbing this toilet for the sake of the name. I'm, um, I'm pulling these weeds for the sake of the name of Jesus. I'm responding in patience. I'm persevering in my studies. I'm whatever unpleasant thing it is that you've got to do. I'm doing this for the sake of the name. Paul says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. Ultimately, we don't share the gospel merely out of love for people. We do share the gospel out of love for people. We don't only share the gospel with them because we don't want them to go to hell. We don't want them to go to hell. Ultimately, we share the gospel with them because we want the name of Jesus to be exalted in their lives. We want Christ to receive from them the honor and gratitude that is due him for what he's done for them among all the nations. And they're here. The nations have come among us. Verse 6, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul writes to these Romans, and he tells them what he's after, and then he, he tells these Romans, you also are the called of Jesus the Messiah. If you're here this morning and you believe in Jesus, you believe the Bible, you're the called. You are the called of Jesus the Messiah. Uh, notice how this word calling has cropped up three times in this passage. Verse, verse 1, Paul, the servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Verse 6, you who are called. Then verse 7, he's going he's to talk about the Romans. So he's introduced himself in verse 1. He's talked about his gospel in verses 2 through 6. And now he speaks to the Romans. To all those in Rome, don't you love this? Don't you love that the first thing that Paul says about the believers in Rome is that they are loved by God. I, I, I like the translations that re render this, beloved. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God. That's the first thing out of Paul's mouth when he describes the Roman Christians. You are loved by God. And I think that this is why Paul repeatedly, in Romans 16... 
Paul repeatedly refers to Roman Christians as his beloved. Romans 16, verses 5, 8, 9, and 12. These different Christians in Rome, they're beloved to him because they're beloved of the Lord. I was thinking about God's love and and, and the Lord is so kind to us to show us, show us human instances of love so that we can think about what it is for God to love us. And I, and I thought about two recent things that happened in the, in the life of this congregation. So uh, just a couple of weeks ago, Travis and Swati were married, and I'm right here when those doors are thrown open. And um, it, it's glorious to stand here and look at a bride and look at a groom and then have them walk up and stand face to face with one another and pledge their love to one another. And the love of God transcends that by infinite degrees. And then yesterday, I'm, at that, I'm in that hospital room and this mother is holding this child and there is such it's palpable in the room. You can feel the love of this mother for this newborn baby. It's glorious. And the love of God for his people surpasses it so much that I can't even begin to put it into words. We are talking about infinite, almighty, divine love of the living God for the people that he loved so much that he sent his son to die for them. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We got to communicate the message of this love. We got to communicate this gospel. The other day, um, Brian Payne is one of my dear friends. And. Um, we got home the other day from this tournament that Jed played in that we got eliminated from, and, and I called Brian to, to debrief with him. And um, before we, we got into talking baseball, he told me about this horrific tragedy that took place in his church. Uh, there, there's, a mem- there's a family in his church, and uh, they have six children, and um, they have some property, so they have a tractor, and all the children had been instructed that the tractor's dangerous, you need, to, you need to stay away from the tractor. But the six-year-old son was playing with a frog, and the frog leaped out of the little boy's hands. And, and the little boy was in a blind spot behind the tra- tractor, and he lunged, and his father ran over him. And his father tried to... His father is trained in CPR, so he administered CPR. He got him resuscitated. Um, It was evident that he would never live a normal life, but then he died when they got to the hospital. And um, and it's it's remarkable the way that this family has has responded. There's a a lot that, that, I mean, Brian just went on and on about how they both the mother and the father spoke at the funeral, and they both shared the gospel at the funeral. But I was particularly struck by how he told me that when they drove, he, he drove the mother home uh, from the hospital for her to tell the other children that their brother had died. And this woman, her, her husband is a lineman, which doesn't mean he's a nose guard. Uh, he, he works on electric lines, so he's got this really dif- difficult and dangerous job. And so Brian related that this mother 
talked about how over the years, she has disciplined herself in the goodness of God. These are people that believe the gospel. And, and she's been preparing her heart for a day when she might have to get down eye level with her kids, like she did the other day, and tell them that their father was in a tragic accident. And all that preparation, all the, this is the phrase he used, she, she said that she had disciplined herself in the goodness of God. And Brian said she got down eye level with her kids and she looked them in the eye and she said to them, we are not going to question the goodness of God. God loves us. God loves us. He sent his son to die for us. And we are not going to question his goodness. We got to share this gospel. Can you imagine? You, you, can, you can spin out in your imagination the possible outcomes of an, of an accident like that among people that don't believe the gospel. That marriage is in deep trouble. That family's in deep trouble. Those people are going to be marked by tragedy. They're still struggling. The gospel doesn't make it where that kid didn't, didn't die a horrific death. They're, they're still dealing with, with stuff, but they have the hope of the resurrection. They have the hope that le, that little boy is going to be raised from the dead and given a glorified body. Um, Brian told me that his wife texted the mother and um, they had just gone to the gravesite for the first time. And this is the text that she sent. Big day for us. We just got home after visiting his grave for the first time. Just her and her husband. And God is still good. And then listen to this. If he can allow the tree to grow that would be made into a cross for his son then he can allow that frog to hatch that would jump out of the hands of my son. The gospel is good news. The gospel is the good news of God. It's the love of God to his people. Let's pray together. Father, where would we be apart from your goodness to us? We would be broken messes, even worse than we are. Lord, we live in the depths, but we see you in the heights. We are hemmed in by mountains of sin. But by your grace, we behold your glory. And the Lord Jesus has gone to the deepest places in these mountains, these sin-surrounding mountains. And he's taken the full weight of their crushing punishment. And he has satisfied your justice. And according to the spirit of holiness, in power, by the resurrection from the dead, he is your son. Father, I pray that you would help us to believe all this. I pray that you would cause our love for Jesus to soar. And I pray that you would help us to to call people to know you, that they too might discipline themselves in your goodness so that when the, when the unspeakable takes place, they can know your comfort and your presence. Lord, we ask you to do all this for the sake of the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.
was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way, the sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no Mary, 
and became man and was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and life giver, the one who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke through the prophets in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We expect the resurrection of the dead and the life of the age to come. Amen. And you may be seated.